So what comes to your mind when you think of a hero? Maybe you think of a family member, or perhaps an admired teacher or coach, an inspirational person of history, or maybe you're very tired from your papers and the first few days of exams and you can't think too deeply right now, so the best you can come up with is something like this. <laughs> this is Achilles, also known as Brad Pitt, that's right. <laughs> It, so, and for the few of you who have read the Iliad, uh, Achilles, he's a sort of kind of hero. Uh, he's a vindictive, emotionally unbalanced hero. Uh, but everybody wants Achilles to fight for them um, on, in a war. Um, and I guess that's one way to, to define a hero, is an invincible fighter. Uh, but that kind of hero is just so 13th century BC. <laughs> so hopefully, these, Robbie, you're on the next slide, these are the kinds of people that pop into your head when you think of heroes. You know, you've got Rosa Parks there, who would not give up her bus seat to a white person on a 1955 Alabama bus. She was arrested and it began to launch what we know of today in the United States as the Civil Rights Movement. Or next to Rosa is Malala, who fights for women's rights in modern-day Pakistan. She was shot for doing this, and she survived, and then she um, consequently won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014. These, I hope, are the people that pop into your head when you think of heroes. And you think about, well, what makes somebody a hero? Thanks, Robbie. I think there's three basic qualities. Heroes have power or ability and courage, usually all three of those things. Number two, they direct those things toward others, just keep it to themselves. And then number three, typically they direct it at others who can't change their own situation. We might say, okay, they need some sort of rescue, um, some sort of change or transformation. Now, what if God were to raise up a hero? What do you think that hero would look like? What comes to your mind? What do you envision? What do you imagine if God were to do that? And believe it or not, you, you actually don't have to imagine. You don't have to guess because our passage tonight, Isaiah 52 and 53, God actually unveils who his hero is and what his hero does. So listen just to the first verse of Isaiah 52. This is toward the end of the chapter, verse 13. Isaiah says, it's really the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, see, this is the Lord speaking to his people, my servant will act wisely and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And this is exactly what you would expect. You know, first verse about God's hero. God, he, it talks about God's servant, and we'll talk more about that word in just a minute. But the servant ends up where heroes end up, exalted with glory and honor and showered with praise. God promises to lift up and exalt his servant, his hero. I mean, it's just like Super Bowl champions on the podium with confetti raining down and the Vince Lombardi trophy in their hands, or you know, a Nobel Prize winner with a medal around their neck and a million dollars in their bank account and worldwide acclaim for doing what they've done, right? Heroes are eventually lifted up and exalted, okay? That's just a given. So that just for just one minute, let's put the spotlight on that one critical word of this, this first verse of this passage, servant. Isaiah was a prophet around 700 BC, and we've been going through parts of his book, and he preached for about 60 years, 
and he called the people of God back into a relationship with God. And throughout Isaiah's sermons, and you can read them, there's 66 chapters worth of his sermons in his book, Isaiah refers to Israel, yeah, thank you, Bobby. He refers to Israel as God's servant. So Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. But you, O Israel, this is God speaking, you, O Israel, are my servant. I took you from the ends of the earth, and I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, so do not fear, for I am with you. And you have multiple passages like that throughout Isaiah. God identifies the Israelites as his servant. However, as you read through Isaiah, time after time, they failed God as his servant. They didn't live up to that calling. So Isaiah points this out, and you can read about this. Isaiah 40, they complained against God as his servant. Isaiah 41, they gave in to fear and not faith. Isaiah 42, they were spiritually blind, deaf, and rebellious. Just listen to what Isaiah says. Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? And then Isaiah goes on to preach against the ways in which Israel has been rebelling against God and failing to live up to their calling as God's servant. But here's the point. Where Israel failed as God's servant, the Lord plans to now raise up another servant and it's a servant who will succeed where Israel has failed. And by the way, this is an aside, but a very important aside. I mean, if we were there some 700 years, um, you know, 700 BC, when Isaiah and company were there, we would have failed too. Right? And the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans 1 through 3, right, where he tells us all of us are blind, all of us are deaf, and all of us are rebellious toward God, whether we are a Jew or a Gentile. You know, Paul is an equal opportunity employer when it comes to everybody being a sinner. You're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, okay? Um, but our goal tonight, this is what this passage is, is to look at, well, who is this unique servant that succeeds where others fail? Who is this unique servant who accomplishes God's plan? And to get a glimpse of God's hero. So Isaiah 52 and 53, it's a poem. It's a poem that consists of five stanzas. And these five stanzas give us five pictures of this servant or this hero. And we're just going to quickly look at each of the stanzas in turn. So picture number one, first stanza, God's hero is shamed. Let me read. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred beyond human likeness. And so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. So here, God's presenting his hero, and, and what do the people see as they look on this hero? How do they react? People shut their mouths, verse 15, and it's not because they're amazed in wonder and at a loss for words. It's because they're appalled, verse 14. God's servant is disfigured and marred, verse 14. And we don't know why yet. It's very disorienting. And, and, and this is what makes people appalled.
And I, I looked up that word, appalled. I looked up the definition. It was greatly dismayed was the, was the first one I, I, I got. And the example sentence, uh, you, can, you can hear this, right? The example sentence that the, I think it was dictionary.com gave, I am appalled at your mistakes. That was the simple sentence. You know, maybe a few of you just heard echoes of a junior high teacher. I'm sorry if you have, right? And what's crazy here is that God is on trial. The people in this passage have assumed role, their role as judge, and they've put God in the witness box. And they've slammed down the gavel, and, and they've determined, they've come up with a verdict of, okay, this servant is deficient, not good enough. We are appalled at what we see. To be appalled means that you make an assessment. You, you, you reach a verdict according to some criteria or expectation that you have. And so here's a picture of God's servant being put on trial by humanity, and humanity judges, judges this servant as deficient. And then this verdict gets publicly announced. And so somehow in this very paradoxical way, God's hero is simultaneously lifted up, verses 13, Verse 13, and then also shamed and dishonored by others. Verse 14 and 15. And if you're confused at this point, well, then, well good, because you're listening. You should be confused. This is very confusing. Like, and to drive the strangeness of this point here, I, I want you to compare this to the image that leaders and influencers around the world often you know, project of themselves. If you go to Instagram today, Rob, you can go there. <laughs> I think these are Instagram photos or, you know, um, profile pics of, of various world leaders. And notice what you see. You see leaders composed, in control, patriotic and loyal. There's a flag behind them or they're in their cultural dress. You know, they look powerful. They're, they're power poses and power ties, power suits. They also look happy as if, like, okay, if I'm happy, I can bestow happiness on the people under me. You know, and I would love to see one of them you know, post a profile picture of himself, like just rolling out of bed. But nobody, just do, nobody does that, right? This is what you see. <clears throat> when people look at God's hero, what is the image? What is the profile that they see? They see somebody who was put on trial, judged, and shamed. And, and they shut their mouths because they are appalled. It's, it's extraordinary that God would allow this to happen. So now picture two. It's a picture of rejection. So God's servant is rejected. Who has believed our message? This is incidentally moving into Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, and like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So God's servant is overlooked, verse 2. I mean, people are not attracted to him in ways that you would expect. And then, verse 3, he's downright rejected, even despised. So here's the scene. God sends his servant and says, listen to him. I'm going to exalt him. He's my agent to execute my plan. 
follow him, and then we just say to God, you don't know what you're talking about. We don't like your plan. We will think, figure out things for ourselves, thank you very much, like stamp of rejection. God's servant is rejected. It's, it's tragic, and it's, it's also a disorienting picture. It's like going to a doctor who says, you're very sick, I know exactly what's wrong with you, and I know how to make you well, and we just say, no thanks, and walk away. Or to a general who rolls up in a tank, I know none of us had this experience, who says, you know, if you stay in this foxhole, you will die, but if you jump in the tank, I can take you to safety to live. And we say, no thanks. And that's tragic, right? But here you have a picture of a God who sends eternal life and sends heavenly rescue through his servant, and they say, no, they reject it. And it's a tragedy unlike any other. But there is hope, look at verse 1, there is hope in this passage of rejection, and you got to hang on to it. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So somehow, somehow, the rejection of God's servant is going to reveal God's arm, God's power in the earth. So you remember God sending ten plagues upon Israel, on Pharaoh in Egypt? Well, that was God's mighty arm reaching down into the earth. Do you remember God saving the Israelites and making a way through the Red Sea and bringing them to safety? That was God's mighty arm reaching down to the earth. Do you remember them walking around the city of Jericho and blowing a few trumpets and the walls came tumbling down? That was God's mighty arm reaching down the earth. But now God says, I'm going to reach down my mighty arm into the earth again, and here's how it's going to look. My servant is going to be rejected. But that is my mighty arm. So how can that be a part of God's plan? Somehow the servant and his rejection will make the invisible God and his power visible. So picture three, moving on to the next stanza. Guilt bearer. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You don't have to look beyond the pronouns to get a sense of what's going on in this stanza. They say it all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we are healed. So somehow, this servant executes a totally unfair transaction. Our guilt is taken away from us, and it is laid on him. And his righteousness is somehow granted to us, and we are healed. You know, let's say that you're playing in a basketball game. And, and you get tired, and of course, typically somebody comes in and takes you to your place. They're a substitute, right? But here, this servant enters the picture as our substitute, but because here we stand guilty before the presence of God as our creator and as our judge, and we've not always lived our lives as they were given to us as a gift to live, and so we are guilty, but now this servant comes and somehow takes our guilt away from us. Just like verse 6 says, the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. A quick, a quick uh, picture, and I'll bring it back. Danielle and I just celebrated our 25th anniversary, or 25th reunions, um, 25th Princeton reunions. We graduated in 1994. Mike, we're brief. And it lasts a couple of days. And, and one of the remarkable things that you can shake your head at when you go to reunions is the thousands upon thousands of pounds of food that it takes to feed the tens and tens of thousands of alums and students and graduates and all the families, right? And they're just spread out all over campus for a couple of days. And Princeton hospitality is amazing. They do it. They pull it off. Um, and, and just imagine, imagine for a moment all of that food, thousands of pounds of food, sort of just all piled up down at Poe Field, right? All that food to keep everybody alive for a couple of days, just piled up in a big mountain down at the bottom of Poe Field. Okay, let's just have to do this. Okay, <laughs> now imagine the sins and iniquities of every person who has ever lived piled up like a big sin mountain. And they're not piled up on Poe Field. They're piled up on the servant. And think of how, how we've all used the life that God has given to us as a gift in ways that he never intended. Our mouths have spoken hurtful words. We've twisted words to deceive others to make ourselves look good. You know, our hands have taken things that aren't ours. Our feet have rushed away from people that we ought to have helped and people that we should have loved. Our minds have judged others wrongly we hold on to destructive prejudices, whether it's intellectual ability, personality, race, and our, our hearts get jealous, bitter, envious, apathetic, and then th those things in our heart, it works its way out into, into thousands of ways in our daily lives. And that's just a picture, but like, picture every sin that you and I and everyone else has committed and still has yet to commit. Picture all of that, without exception, being laid on God's servant. And that is the picture here. Like, this is God's hero, but he's also a guilt-bearer. And, and this begs the question, well, will this servant go along with this? This is a completely unfair transaction. Will he willingly be this kind of substitute for others? And so picture four is a picture of a silent, innocent sacrifice. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So this servant, verse 7, is silent. He didn't open up his mouth. That's repeated twice. He was innocent. Verse 9, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And I think that's intended to be about everything about this servant. And he was a sacrifice that did not run away. Verse 7, he's like a lamb going to a slaughter. He's an innocent, silent 
sacrifice. We would never say that the servant is happy to be the sacrifice. But we could say that the servant is willing. So willing that the servant submits to death, verse 8. He's taken and cut off from the land of the living. And verse 9, he's assigned a grave. And I, I want to linger, before we move on to the final stanza, I just want to linger on this servant's silence for a moment. Really consider this. This is amazing. Think about people who have power. Rarely are they silent, number one. <laughs> number two, usually they love to be heard. And then number three, sometimes they use their power to silence others. We know this, right? The Iranian government periodically shuts down all forms of communication, internet, everything, when they sense there's political unrest among the people so they can't communicate to each other. They do this today. President Trump has at times evicted certain journalists out of, his, out of his press conferences. And every year there's a major company or organization somewhere, usually multiple, where the leaders are exposed for wrongdoing, right? And this is really common, whether it's sexism or fraud or abuse. But when everything comes out, usually you find out that there was a season or a period of time where those leaders were silencing the people under. They were using their power to keep people quiet, usually under, their, under threat, right? A couple of years ago, it was Travis Glenick, of CB, the CEO of Uber, who's no longer the CEO of Uber. And this year, it'll be somebody else. My point here is look at God's servant. He's the manifestation of God's powerful arm on the earth. He has incredible power, unrivaled power. And instead of silencing others, he himself remains silent. The world's ways of using power in this moment, they're completely flipped around. The servant could have rightfully used his power to silence those who were wrongly rejecting him, but instead he becomes the silent, innocent sacrifice who submits all the way to death. So, you're coming on the last stanza, and you just say, how can this be God's hero? Like, from an earthly perspective, this is an utter disaster. God has a plan for all of history, for all of humanity, and, and this is the climax. This is it. I mean, this has to be a total failure. It is God just figuring things out on the fly, and this is somehow plan B or plan C. And then you find out in the last stanza that, no, this is not the case at all. This is God's plan A. So picture number five is a faithful conqueror. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Apparently what seems like a disaster from one perspective is, verse 10, it is God's plan. This was the Lord's will to crush the servant. 
And by carrying out the Lord's will, the servant is faithful. And what appears to be a humiliating defeat is actually victory. The servant conquers, verse 10, he will see his offspring. Verse 11, he will see the light of life. Verse 12, he will divide his spoils of victory with others. So somehow through shame and suffering, the servant is crowned with honor and glory. Somehow through death, the servant resurrects to see the light of life. And somehow through rejection and isolation, the servant amasses for himself a large family. He sees his offspring and he justifies many. The pathway the servant walked, the script the servant acted out, it was so strange. It is so strange. I dare say that none of us would have ever have come up with this. You all are very creative. But as the Lord says in Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. God had a plan to reveal his hero. And here it is in Isaiah 52 and 53. And this is one of the clearest Old Testament descriptions of what we can expect God's hero to be like. And, okay, so we're here, we're at the end. So just a few thoughts. You know, some people refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Now, even though it was written some 700 years before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their gospels, they call it the fifth gospel because of passages like this. Because it so clearly points to the person, to the life, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It, with eerie and just remarkable accuracy. And I, I have to leave it to you to consider the many ways that this passage fulfill, is, is fulfilled by Jesus in his lifetime and his ministry. But I, I remember my sister reading this. Uh, I was reading it with her uh, several years ago, and she commented, she basically said, Chris, this is like magic. Uh, you know, how did somebody write this 700 years before Jesus? And I just said, I admitted, I was like, yeah, this is like magic. I mean, maybe the biblical way of understanding this is prophetic, but it's, it's like magic. And I, I came across, just thinking about the thrust of this passage today, I, came, I read this today. This is written by a pastor in a, a, a quickly growing church out in California, mostly millennials, so people your age, maybe a little bit older. But this is what the pastor said. Um, this is one of his messages that he gave to his congregation uh, not too long ago. He's talking about Jesus and the cross and trying to understand everything. And he says, this is why Jesus goes to get sacrificed, to put an end to sacrifice. Not because he is the perfect lamb to end sacrifice, but because he's saying that the sacrificial system is wrong. You don't need to convince God you're okay. God already loves where you're at. So that, that's the message that he's giving to his congregation. I hear that, and I think, well, I, I really would like to hear what he has to say about Isaiah 52 and 53, because the, it doesn't fit with what he's preaching and teaching his congregation. But the thing is, is that when you, when you believe what he's saying, too, you lose two really important things about God. The first thing you lose is you, learn, you lose just the lavish, extraordinary, self-giving love of Jesus Christ for you. Like, what would you do to love somebody else? How far would you go? 
Would you be willing to endure ridicule and shame for them? Would you suffer for them, even innocent suffering? We can't even imagine dying for someone. And would you do all of that knowing that they're going to reject you, or maybe that they have rejected you anyway? And, and God took such a big risk to love us in such a, an extraordinary and lavish way in Jesus Christ. And, and it's because of our stubborn pride, we can still say to God, no thanks. We can still reject him. And so I hope you can see in a passage like this, you can just see the, the, the extraordinary love of Jesus Christ for you and me. But that's one thing you lose. The other thing you lose is you, you lose God's consistent justice. God does not turn a blind eye to our sin. He can't. He's God, and it would, just, it would be completely unjust for him to sort of just do this and ignore our sin, close his eyes to it. But God, in his mercy, he, he, he takes our sin and he lays it on his servant, the one who bears our guilt and our shame, Jesus Christ. He judges our sin for what it is, and it's an offense against him, but Jesus is the one who pays the penalty, not us. And so when we put our faith in him and Jesus' work on our behalf, we are forgiven, we're healed, and we're given new life. But God can still say, I am just. I've looked at sin, and I've dealt with it. He judges sin, but he can also say that I am the justifier. I can look at a person and declare them not guilty, righteous, set free. And this is what makes Jesus such a great hero, God's great hero. So remember the three qualities of a hero. A hero has power, ability, and courage. Right? This is the last slide, Robbie, thank you. Or second to last slide. Jesus was God's arm of power on earth. Jesus said in John 5, the Son of Man can do nothing himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Right? He's God's arm on earth. Number two, a hero directs that power toward others. There's nobody like Jesus who so selflessly and so completely directed his power and his love toward us. Philippians 2, Jesus Christ was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant. And then finally, number three, a hero directs that power toward others, others who can't change their own situation and need rescue. We could not save ourselves, but he stepped in as our substitute, bearing our guilt and shame, bringing healing and new life in his name. And how do we respond? Number one, we believe. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as God's Savior, God's hero for you and your needs. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believe it. Trust that Jesus and his righteousness can become your righteousness. Trust him. And then number two, live. Believe and live. Live and walk in the new life that Christ has given. First Peter 2. He himself, this is Peter, the, the disciple of Jesus, quoting Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus doesn't save us 
so that we can keep piling sins on him in that sin mountain. Christ saves us so that we would live the new life that he offers, an abundant life, a life that means following him for his glory and for our good. So believe and live. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so undeserving of your great love for us, poured out through Jesus Christ, your servant. But we marvel that this was your plan for the ages. You executed it perfectly, and you have taken the risk to love us with this kind of love, a love that came at such great cost. I pray that you would move in each of our hearts to embrace the grace that you offer us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would move in our hearts, transform our hearts, so that we would eagerly and willingly live for you and know that there is great joy in following you and living for you. So Lord, I pray that you would bless these here tonight as they seek you and look for you. I pray that they would find you in a deeper way through your word, as we sing songs, as we pray, and as we fellowship together tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name.